Good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Julie Dye and I'm here with my co-host, Amy Shepard. Good morning. The Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the med tech industry. Today, we're speaking with Greg Matthews, the founder of HealthQuant. Greg is a really important person to our podcast because as a podcaster himself, he really encouraged us to move forward with this venture. So we are really thrilled to have you here today. Welcome, Greg. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Yes, welcome, Greg. We're really excited. Greg, Julie and I often like to open our interviews by learning about our guests' backgrounds and how they got to where they are today. Talk about your career path and what led you to this place in time. So I'm one of those people that had a really weird kink in the middle of my career path. I spent the first 17 years of my career working in corporate human resources roles. So I was doing things like uh, organizational development and planning, performance management, that kind of stuff. And I was doing that work at Humana, the health benefits company. And I was assigned to work with their innovation team. Uh, And this is back in the mid 2000s. And I had this really, really interesting opportunity to actually switch roles and join that consumer innovation team that was doing really, really cool cutting edge stuff, like forming a bike sharing company that actually still exists and is Austin was Austin's first uh, bike sharing company, um, working on games for health. And my field of study when I switched into working in this innovation team was in trying to understand the science behind how people's social networks actually impacted their health. Uh, And this was actually before the days when social media, online social media was a mainstream thing. So we were thinking about things like the Framingham study, you know, looking at how does somebody's neighbor's health impact their own health. But it was also around the same time that social media was starting to become mainstream. Facebook was coming out of the university setting. YouTube had been uh, available for a couple of years and was really rising in popularity. Uh, Twitter was launched in 2007. And so pretty quickly, my field of emphasis started looking at how will the use of these online social networks impact people's health. And that's really what led me to being here today. I did that work at Humana for a few years, went to work for a marketing agency and spent eight years helping healthcare companies to better leverage social media and better understand how social media can help them drive business decisions. And uh, that's what ultimately led me to, to found HealthQuant in 2018. Well, you know, Greg, you mentioned some of that early work, and I actually got to have a front row seat to see you do some of that work when we were both working on the agency side. And so early on, you were, you know, taking a look at physician influencers and how, you know, pharmaceutical and medical device companies could really identify those online. And that was during the time when we didn't know if physicians were really even using social media for business purposes. And so what motivated you to do some of that early work? So this goes back to my Humana days, but we had a couple of pieces of conventional wisdom that I think were probably shared by most of the healthcare industry back then. And one was that there's no way that people are going to talk about their health online because it's way too personal. So we don't expect patients to be actually using these social networks to talk about their health. 
Uh, and the second piece of conventional wisdom that there's no way we can double that for doctors because not only is it too private, but they don't have time. There's no reimbursement in it for them. There's no way that doctors are going to adopt these technologies. And so I was naturally pretty shocked, although happily so, to discover that you know way back in 2006, 2007, 2008, some of the the very first people to adopt blogs, to adopt podcasts, to adopt Twitter were actually doctors. That was really shocking to me. And it led to a real rabbit hole for me uh, to really study how and why doctors were flocking to social channels uh, when there seemed to be so many reasons why they shouldn't be. And so Again, while we were working in that agency back in 2012, I was moonlighting with a, a developer uh, at the agency, and we sort of figured out that, hey, we can take the U.S. National Physician Registry, the NPI database, and start appending doctors' Twitter accounts to it. And lo and behold, you know, over the next couple of years, we were able to match up literally hundreds of thousands of U.S. doctors with their MPI numbers and seeing that doctors were really adopting this channel. So that's what really led to the huge aha that said, hey, there's this massive source of information out there that would be really, really useful for pharma and medical device companies to better understand how this audience is thinking, interacting, how they interact with each other, how they interact with patients. And uh, that that's really what got me into this field of online influence analytics, specifically around healthcare professionals. Wow, that makes sense. Um, so along those lines, you've been studying patterns of, of influence in healthcare for quite a while. What did you learn that might surprise us? So, and this is a really interesting thing because I think this this idea of the online influencer has sort of gone through ups and downs over the last several years, right? We, you probably both remember Clout uh, and that silly influence measurement platform that went around it and everybody wanted to have a big clout score and so forth. Uh, and as it turns out, that was it was pretty useless and they ultimately went out of business. But here's the thing. There is, we do have the ability because there's so much data available to us to actually measure and quantify influence. But the more important thing, that that part isn't surprising. The surprising part to me is really understanding that number one, influence does not happen in a vacuum. It's not just about the individual. It's about who that individual interacts with, who is a part of their network. The other thing that I have found surprising is that not only is it not just about the individual, it is also highly contextual. You know, I referenced clout. I think the reason that clout was such a failure is that it had no context. It was all about, you know, how many followers do you have? And that is a really, really poor way to measure influence. If you are a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company, it all has to be based around the goals that you want to accomplish. And so we need to find the right kind of influence from the right kind of influencer to reach the right kind of audience. And that kind of context is what I, what I mean by uh, being able to, to do what at HealthQuant we call influence to purpose. It's contextual influence. Now, that sounds really different from the way that the industry side of healthcare has identified influencers traditionally, right? You, a lot of times would have your sales force who would say, hey, I've got this doctor. I think they'd be great for our speakers bureau, right? And so 
what you're saying is there's a lot better way to identify your KOLs, you know, depending on the program that you might need them for, right? So, you know, what what's different about the the, the approach and the way that you do this? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think most people that are that are working in a field that is is like mine came out of a very traditional sort of med ed, med comms background where all of that work to understand who's a key opinion leader or a KOL, it's typically done around surveys. You know, they'll send out hundreds or thousands of surveys to doctors and say, hey, who do you think is important to you? Or, and or, it's a lot of desk research. You know, people literally Googling who was on the podium at blah, blah, blah conference. And of course, the last one is the one that you referenced, which is, you know, a lot of KOL lists happen to be whoever, you know, whichever doctors happen to agree to talk to your salespeople, um, which, you know, there's value in those relationships, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those are the people who are going to be able to influence their peers. And so for me, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing surveys. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing desk research. There's nothing inherently wrong with understanding who your sales force has relationships with. But there's a lot left uh, undone when you rely on only those things. Surveys are heavily biased. Uh, they are very expensive. They are very time consuming. Um, and the work that we're doing today is really quantifiable. We can get really specific in the kinds of influence we're studying, and it can be so much more accurate. It can be faster. It can be cheaper. We can automate and quantify influence to a degree that was never possible before. That makes sense. So historically, there's been a big divide between the way you know device and pharma companies look for KOLs um, versus online influencers, and certainly you kind of touched on this, you know that there could be some regulatory reasons for that. How are you seeing this happen right now? And you know, is this something you're seeing changed? Yeah. So I think what what is really interesting that I'm seeing is that there is a lot of convergence in clients of all sizes in terms of the way that they think about their strategy relative to physicians and other HCPs. Before, when you know we had a sort of that one-size-fits-all mentality uh, in terms of defining influence, it was pretty easy for medical affairs to do one thing, for commercial to do another thing, for clinical development to do a third thing, and never they shall meet. Now what I'm seeing more of is that at least on the front end, there's this recognition that number one, influence is not a one size fits all. Doctors, all doctors are not good at all things. And so what we try to do is to get to a place where we can identify A, what are the needs of the different parts of the business? And B, what are the specific skills, abilities, and interests of the doctors? And then do what I kind of jokingly refer to as a physician fantasy draft, where we can literally bring doctors to the table and say, okay, these are the matches that make sense based on the needs of our business and the abilities and interests of these doctors. And after we've done that, we can then have firewalls in place to meet regulatory requirements and, and sort of the ethical requirements that, that we have to have in place. They're good. You know, those are good things to have. Once the once we've made those decisions, we can have those barriers in place, but there's not really any reason, regulatory or otherwise, to do that upfront. Yeah, Greg, I love that. 
What are one or two things that companies should consider moving forward as they are thinking about working with physicians on a new program, whether it's for product development, medical education, or a speakers bureau, for instance? Yeah, and I think this is this is where we need to challenge some of the sort of the traditional thinking in this space because again, you know, we talked about the fact that just because your sales team has access to a doctor and a good relationship doesn't mean that they're in a position to influence their peers. And so what I would suggest is, hey, let's actually make that a factor in our decision, but not the factor. And I think having a process where you're really identifying your actual business needs up front and then taking that process to the next step where you say, all right, given that this is our business need, whether you know that business need might be, we are launching a new product and we need to raise awareness about it and build education about how it should be used. Or whether that is, hey, we've just had some research that was that portrayed our product set in a negative light and we need to figure out how to get the right information out there to the right people. Those use cases, and there are hundreds of them, can be really different. Finding the right doctors to meet those specific business use cases is the really critical thing because not every doctor is best suited for every kind of engagement. And today we actually have the ability to distinguish those things, right? We don't have to pick them and then find out that they were the wrong one for the job. You know, Greg, I, you, you shared with me at one point kind of a unique case study with some physicians in Europe and Italy that you were able to identify and how they had influence over some fellowship programs. And so I thought that was a really, really unique, um, you know, case study that you had. And I wondered if you could just talk, you know, at a high level about what that was about, because I think that, you know, just looking at that really opened up some ideas for me as a marketer, you know, and how, how, again, how are we looking at influencers? And, you know, it almost seems like sometimes companies want a one size fits all approach, right? Sure. So you've got one, one KOL and you want to use them for four or five different programs. But the reality is, is that you may need KOLs identified for each program that you, you, you need to implement. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, that Italian case study. Yeah, I think that is a really interesting one, Julie. And I'll give you kind of the basic background here. The situation that we had there is that for one of my medical device clients, they had developed a few centers of excellence in, in Europe and were looking to expand from this small number of centers of excellence. They had five at the time and were looking to expand into 20 centers of excellence. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is rather than picking those at random or picking the ones that were close to our company's offices or, you know, picking the one that our sales team, you know, played tennis with, we wanted to have a more strategic way of thinking about how are we going to target these centers of excellence and who are the, the, the KOLs that can help us to get from where we are today to where we'd like to be. And what was really interesting is that we took we looked at the physicians in their five centers of excellence and mapped their relationships via uh, co-authorship of research publications, via social media connections, via their institutional affiliations like medical society memberships and so forth. And by mapping these connections, what we were able to find is that 
out of all the doctors that they were working with in these five centers of excellence, there's actually one little cluster of doctors. There were about six doctors in this cluster that represented all five of their centers of excellence. All six of these doctors had worked extensively together and were connected to each other. And they were connected to literally hundreds of other physicians in Europe at other potential targets for centers of excellence. Now, I would say only one out of these six doctors was considered a KOL at that point. The other six were actually, they became very important to our influence study, not necessarily because they were on the podium more or they had uh, you know, hundreds of academic publications or had led dozens of clinical trials, but because of the fact that they had worked with our KOL and had extensive network collaborations in the places we want to go, that cluster of influence became much more important than any individual influencer ever could. And it allowed us to get to a place where we're actually able to very efficiently extend and evaluate into what are the next 20 centers of excellence via the, the connections of this network cluster. I love it. And so it was really you know, beneficial work for them to do to identify those centers of excellence and where they were going next. So, you know, this is what fascinates me about your work. So I love, I love that you shared that with us. Absolutely. So we have one parting question for you. Since you're here on the Morning Fix podcast, we'd love to know what you do for your morning fix. <laughs> yeah, I love I've loved the answers to to this question on your podcast. By the way, I love your show guys and I'm really honored to be on it. But uh, I would say my morning fix is always, you know, it's very consistent. Up at 5 a.m., run 6 miles, 200 push-ups, 100 sit-ups. Um <laughs> No, that's actually nothing. Exactly zero of those things are true. Um, I I have always been something of a night owl, uh, and so one of the things that's been really beneficial about running my own company is that I have a little bit more control over my schedule. Uh, and so I would say, ever since my daughter had st has started uh, being able to drive herself to school, which is a real blessing, I am able to start my day a little more slowly. My morning fix is always a cup of coffee. Uh, very first. So probably no surprise to, to you or, or many of your listeners. Uh, and I do actually like to spend a little bit of quiet time on my own. And for me, that consists of reading the Bible and doing some meditation uh, before I start a busy day. But that's that to me is how we start a good day and, and hopefully not bef too much before the sun comes up. Well, that's great, Greg. It's always fun to hear about morning rituals and what helps people start their day off on the right foot. Thank you so much for your thoughts. You've been such an inspiration to us and to our show. And thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you've been enjoying this series. As I always say, please be on the lookout for more interviews from amazing med tech leaders. And thank you for tuning into the Morning Fix by 510K Cafe. 